Welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our second mini-series on climate security, looking at the link between security and climate change top issues. I'm Sabrina Dao. And I'm Sofia Shevchuk. This series is a part of project led by Wise Brussels with the support of the US mission to NATO. In this mini-series, we bring together diverse voices of women across the world leading discussion in climate security. Through their own expertise and experience, they share and debate their point of view on critical climate security issues. We hope you will enjoy this episode as much as we do. Thank you for listening. In this episode, we invite climate security experts who not only come from different backgrounds, but also worked in several countries across the world deeply impacted by climate change. Together, they discuss the current state of affairs and prospects on the role of institutions such as the EU, OSCE and the UN. How peace, climate and security connected? Can multilateralism implement sustainable responses for both climate change and security threats? Which institution is the most effective these days in tackling climate change? We answer these questions and more in this episode. So let's start by a round of introduction. Mariko, Olivia, Annick, please let us know who you are, what you do, and how this topic resonates with what you know and experience throughout your life. Well, thank you very much, Sabrina and Sophia. I'm very pleased to be on this uh, podcast episode. I am Mariko, Mariko Peters. By background, I'm a Dutch lawyer, a green politician and a diplomat. And I now work for the EU External Action Service, the EAS, since two and a half years in the conflict prevention team. And from there, I've been trying to build up, together with colleagues, a climate, peace and security portfolio, which is a relatively new topic. And I'll be happy to explain where we are. And I've lived in many places that were hit by climate change very, very badly in Horn of Africa, in Afghanistan and the region. And my interest in the topic, it started actually in my childhood years when I participated in a demonstration to save the forest and next to where we lived um, from road construction. And the forest is still there, but so are the road plans. And so for 40 years, protests have continued, but they're growing in number. So what I learned is that environment actions can take an incredibly long time, but that the number of people who care are growing. And the same I saw in politics. When I was active in green politics in the early 2000s, not many parties cared about climate, but now it's a completely different story and most governments have climate agendas. And just to share that when I was living in places like Afghanistan or the Horn of Africa, where people were very much preoccupied by the life-threatening conflicts that uh, daily influenced their lives, and although their countries were also heavily hit by climate change and environmental degradation, There, it was not their primary concern. So that was really um, worrisome to see that. And what I find equally worrisome is being a mother. I have school-growing children, and these children grow up in a different way. They are taught about climate change, about how action is lacking, they are worrying. For me, working on climate issues is both a professional and a personal, let's say, passion. It comes together. There's worry, there is concern, but there's also hope because so many more people start to care. Hello, everyone. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you, Sabrina and Sophia, for welcoming us. And I'm really happy to be with you, Mariko and Anik. 
Um, so my name is Olivia Lazard. I work as a visiting scholar with Carnegie Europe, and I'm also director of my own little consultancy boutique. It's called Peace and Design Consulting, and I only do research and programmatic or strategic support in conflict and fragile zones. And it's actually my background. Um, I've been working in conflict and fragile zones for both nearly 15 years now in different regions of the world. And uh, by working in many different, uh, many different regions of the world, particularly uh, various parts of Africa and the Middle Eastern region, I noticed uh, that the so-called security actors writ large, um, security or peacemaking or defense actors were essentially missing the mark on environmental issues and even more so on climate-related issues. And yet I was seeing, you know, when I was uh, doing a lot of, uh, of data collection with conflict-affected populations, I was seeing that they were complaining more and more and they were worried, you know, more and more over the years about uh, disruptions that were affecting their livelihoods, their ability to live with one another, to engage with nature in uh, predictable and reliable ways, um, in ways that had sustained essentially their cultures for decades, centuries. And when I was trying to turn to um, UN peacekeeping missions or NGOs, you know, in charge of peace building or mediation actors, saying, well, I think that we're missing, you know, an opportunity to engage with uh, communities, but also with conflict parties themselves about what drives conflicts in the background, um, not to bring everything down to the environment, but for sure it has a, a huge role to play. Yes, thank you both uh, Sabrina and Sophia for the invitation to join this podcast. Um, my name is Anik Barnhorn. And I have an interdisciplinary background in international relations, environmental governance, and sustainable development uh, from the universities of Leiden and Wageningen, both in the Netherlands. And uh, to further pursue these topics, I joined the Climate Change and Risk Program at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute in September 2019. And here I work on yeah, policy-relevant research on climate-related security risks. And over the past two years, I've been focusing on international organizations and how they are addressing climate-related security risks. And this includes yeah, the European Union, but also the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE. Um, so here we look at yeah, what have they been doing in the past? What are they doing now? But also what could they do better in the future, uh, which we'll probably talk about a little bit later. And uh, yeah, I don't have as many years experience as uh, Mariko and Olivia, but hopefully I can share some insight from my research over these past years with you. And uh, yeah, thank you again. And I look forward to discussing this with you further. Absolutely, Anik. These debates here are also organized to have an exchange between people who work in academia, policymakers, and uh, have some sort of a generational exchange as well. There are not so many platforms that allow us all to talk to each other in a way that we do here. So thank you for joining us. I'm going to start with the first question here. Is there a nexus between climate, gender and security? Why is it important to talk about this nexus? And is there a gender aspect to it? Climate change can exacerbate existing social, economic and political vulnerabilities with possible adverse effects on peace and security. And these challenges are often transboundary in nature, which means that states are increasingly relying on international, regional and security organizations for policy solutions. And yeah, the good part is that the implications of climate change for peace, development and security are being increasingly recognized. But the less good part is that there remains a lot of progress to be made 
for these risks to be fully addressed. Um, so it'll be key for international organizations to go yeah, beyond discourse and policy, but also more towards practice and action. And in doing so, it's important to address the root causes and the risks that are being compounded by climate change and yeah, already are, but also will continue to affect the peace and security landscape. So I'm the policy practitioner here, right? And I'm talking together with you today uh, from coming from think tanks uh, like Carnegie and CIPRI. And um, you produce the reports that I read and that feed our policies. And not only you, there's, there's, there's a whole stacks of uh, reports that we read. And let me show you which sound bites we take from them to try ahead to make our policy briefs and statements and speeches more climate sensitive. So typically we evoke that 40 to 60% of conflicts are already associated with conflict over natural resources. Climate change hits hardest in places often already ridden by conflict and environmental degradation. There's ample evidence for that. And um, it never comes alone. These places already have so many other conflict and fragility related issues. And then the climate stress just comes on top of that. I've seen a lot of that also myself in practice. Um, I told you I worked in the Horn of Africa before with millions of refugees that were fleeing neighboring wars. And then they land in, in, in desolate places with no water, no trees that were cut for fuel, cracked earth, desertification and flooding at the same time, population growth, tensions with host community. And um, this was before, and this is what we also often quote in our policy documents, this was before UNHCR started warning about climate refugees. 90% of them already come from climate emergencies, and these numbers will increase. And these numbers from all your policy papers, they were also from before the Ukraine war that has woken us all up to the need for accelerated energy transition and better food security. And again here, the areas hit hardest by the indirect consequences of the Russian invasion elsewhere in the world are already, again, hotspots of climate change and fragility. Middle East, Horn of Africa. So there's a lot of reason to be uh, yeah, worried about this link between climate change, environmental degradation and security. But I don't want to conclude just with that um, depressing message. Again, there's also a message of hope here because climate can be a reason for peace. It is never an automatic consequence of conflict. And in some conflicts, warring parties that would otherwise never talk to each other actually started working together because the common climate and resource challenges were getting bigger than the war. And one most inspiring example of this that I like to quote is the collaboration between Jordan and Israel over water and solar energy that they agreed to in February this year. And I, um, I, I wanna take a bit of a longer view on the issue. For the last 10 years or so, when we have talked about the intersections between climate and security, we have focused essentially on the concept of international security or human security as we've known it for as long as we've been alive. And I think that there are some things which are changing. We have to remember essentially that we've moved from the Holocene to the Anthropocene. The Holocene started about 11,000 years ago. It seems like a really, really long time to discuss international security in our modern world, but it is quite relevant because the Holocene is actually the one period in the geological history of planet Earth where we've benefited from such a stable climate and such stable marine and terrestrial ecosystems that human civilizations could flourish. They could actually be midwifed essentially into existence and they started 
with human settlements and they started with agriculture, which then you know, led to a whole sequencing and evolution of the way in which we understand what civilizations are today. That is changing. We have already stepped outside of the Holocenic period and we've stepped into the Anthropocene, which is essentially defined by how human activities are a driving force of change in geology. And our climate is changing as a result. It is changing obviously due to the, the excess release of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere as a result of intensive energy systems and intensive economic activities around the world. But it's also changing and it has been changing actually for the last millennia as a result of changes to our, to our landscapes and to the ecosystems that have sustained human civilizations and various forms of complex life since the beginning of times. The reality is that we're headed into an era of uncertainty and unpredictability that we are little prepared for, clearly in terms of institutional change, but also in terms of imagination. We're going to have to figure it out as we go along. We're going to, you know, even the best climate models today do tell us that to a certain extent they underestimate the impacts and disruptions of climate change their pat, their pace, their 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 scope, their uh, the ways in which you know they will have um, tremendous unfolding effects on institutions, on human security, on international architecture, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We are trying to understand you know human behavior and geopolitical behavior on the basis of what we know from history, and it is obviously necessary, but we have to recognize that there are a number of X factors that might escape our understanding and that we're going to have to understand as we go along. One key you know, thing that we've looked upon uh, in the climate security community over the last 10 years is whether or not climate change will cause more scarcity and therefore more competition, either between states or between communities. What we're now seeing is that indeed, you know, there is an effect essentially of resource distribution, which is changing. Um, watersheds are changing, agricultural systems are changing. That means that the macroeconomic and food and water security systems that people have relied upon for, again, decades are changing with them. So it's bringing this, this notion of instability and unpredictability that people are trying to sort of uh, react to. In some circumstances, it can lead to cooperation. Um, and that's, I think, why Mariko is, is very correct in, in insisting that we we are facing such a level of collective threat that we need to look at it uh, as an opportunity essentially to strengthen cooperation um, rather than necessarily assume that it's going to create competition. But the places where we see indeed, you know, to a certain extent more competition is the places which we uh, have identified to be relatively abundant. If you look at Mali, for example, um, you're going to see, uh, you know, the northern part of the country, which is fairly, which is really desertic. Um, water is quite scarce, um, very, very scarce, actually. Food production systems are not in place. Um, and it's mostly a place where there are a lot of transits, traffickings and things like this, because it's very vast and it's a lot less surveilled. Where you see a lot more conflict um, happening is actually around central Mali, which is a place which is very fertile, very abundant, because it has an arm of the, of the Niger Delta and the Bourgoutière. And this is where you essentially have this notion of, you know, more and more uh, communities coming together, trying to compete for a resource, particularly around water and 
its adjacent production systems around rice, around you know, um, semi-nomadic communities and other types of production systems, including fish productions, um, where you see a lot more competition, it's heightening and lessening depending on how uh, you know, the, the resource of water changes and how essentially governance systems adapt. Thank you for your answers. And uh, the next question would be, should we include gender aspect into climate, peace and security nexus? And if yes, then why? When we start looking at the ways in which um, climate change impacts human security, or even international security for that matter, we have to understand how it impacts obviously people in, in very specific ways. So if you look at the African continent, for example, you have a lot of subsistence agriculture or informal agriculture. 90% um, of the subsistence agriculture is mainly led by women. And if you have a lot of um, disruptions as a result of climate change, then the direct vulnerability will be on women first and the communities and the households that they support. So if you have you know, uh, livelihoods disruptions for very vulnerable households, then you're gonna have you know, knock-on effects or cascading effects essentially in terms of rising of poverty, uh, less uh, access to education, particularly of girls, um, less ability essentially to move from the informal sector, which is characterized often by a lot of domestic and uh, organized violence to the formal sector. So it's, it has very, very heavy knock-on effects in terms of underdevelopment over time. So climate change is clearly sort of, you know, unsettling a lot of different equilibriums and questioning whether or not we can actually deliver on fundamental promises that um, societies have pledged towards either net zero neutrality, but also the sustainable development goals, for example. Now, I think it's incredibly important to include um, gender in this discussion. I mean, it, it cannot be avoided. As we mentioned previously, it, climate change exacerbates existing vulnerabilities. And uh, women and girls are a group that is often particularly vulnerable uh, to these challenges. Um, and uh, we're also increasingly seeing you know, the women, peace and security agenda incorporating this as well. I think it's incredibly important. And uh, within our team at CIPRI, we also have uh, colleagues working on this more specifically. The changing security landscape, uh, Mariko and Olivia both mentioned, uh, can also be seen in the way we work on these topics at CIPRI. Um, so we are uh, a peace research institute, uh, most known to people for our research on conflict, armament, arms control and disarmament. But what not as many people know is that the Climate Change and Risk Programme is now the biggest research team at the Institute. So this illustrates that security risks are changing and that climate change cannot be forgotten in this uh, discussion. So we often say that the human security risks of today are the hard security risks of tomorrow and institutions, uh, gender, peacekeeping missions are all angles that uh, we are taking uh, within our research program on these challenges. So as you may know, this year is the 50th anniversary of the UN Conference on the Human Environment. And this is the first time that the UN talked about how environmental crises could affect development and human well-being. And in a major report called Environment of Peace, we mapped this new area of security risks and how to navigate it. So we look at yeah, the green energy transition that we urgently need to make. What are the security risks it entails? How do we avoid them? How do we make this transition just, but also yeah, peaceful and sustainable? So these challenges require um, yeah, action at all levels of society. And yeah, the role of multilateral organizations, which we're also discussing today, is of utmost importance there. Yeah, and if I could perhaps add to that in a more 
personal fashion, after Olivia has explained very well how climate change, let's say, hits the women hardest and all our households, and, um, and Nika, human security is our hardcore security of the future. I'd say that the gender dimension is not only important when we look at the impacted side. It's also, I believe, on our side, that the community active on gender issues is particularly well-placed to contribute to climate peace and security issues. Because gender-sensitive people, in my view, are acutely aware of the need for systemic change. And climate and energy transition requires a new way of living together, just as the ideal of um, gender equality does. And I might be mistaken, but I'm under the impression that some characteristics of this new way of climate-sensitive living are about gender-sensitive values, such as collaboration, peaceful means of dispute resolution, less materialism, more harmony with nature, caring. There is no such thing as a gender-sensitive war or a gender-sensitive coal mine. So I'd say gender equality, peace, and ecological balance go hand in hand. Big, big, big highlight. And I just want to hide uh, to, to add something to this. Um, if you look back on uh, the one of the latest IPCC reports from Working Group 2, which came out at the end of February this year, they highlighted something really, really important, which is that there is a direct relationship between the capacity for adaptation in the age of climate disruptions and uh, equality, equity, and resilience in a society. The more unequal a society can be, including on gender-related issues, the more likely it's um, going to be highly impacted by climate change, and particularly in its relationship to the adaptiveness capacity to respond to climate disruptions and to adapt and change systemically and transform systemically, as, as Mariko was just saying. There may be research already being done on the subject. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sure that there may be. I think that maybe we should even argue for more um, about how you can actually uh, increase the ability, essentially, of societies, um, regions, communities, to plan better for climate adaptation in ways that are indeed, you know, gender sensitive, age sensitive, maybe even or generation sensitive, uh, identity or culture sensitive. And I would even go uh, one step further to sort of zero down on the fact that having a lens on gender and particularly on this notion of empowerment is really important we tend to look at agriculture as one of the, the problems in relation to climate change, um, but we also know that can, it can be flipped into being a solution. And very often, agricultural systems that are in women's hands, let's put it this way, um, without being too simplistic, tend to be more complex, tend to be more nutritious, and tend to be a lot more ecologically sound. It's not true across the board, but it is, there is some truth, um, you know, largely to this. We need to understand that um, how to harness better, more complex, more ecologically relevant agriculture. And there is a lot to learn from smallholder agriculture, which is very often held by women. And therefore, if we look down specifically something which is close to my heart, this notion of complex regeneration, we need to specifically look at the role that women can play in shifting things around, even from a systemic perspective, both at a political, economic, and social empowerment levels. Yeah, thank you both. I think, yeah, both Mariko and Olivia, you, you formulated this excellently. And I think without 
uh, yeah, including the perspectives of uh, groups like women, but also indigenous people and youth, yeah. uh, we will not be able to, to find the adequate solutions. There, there's a lot to learn, um, including all these perspectives, I think is the only way forward to really concrete action uh, with perspectives from the ground and from all different levels of society. Thank you all. That was very insightful. Now, I would like to go more in depth on multilateral organizations. When we think about these organizations with the ability to address global climate-related peace and security threats, there are a few names that come to my mind. The UN, the African Union, the ASEAN or the EU, for example. Of course, each of these organizations have different mandates and agendas. But I would like to know if a particular organization comes to your mind as a sort of role model in addressing climate security issues. I don't think that there should be one go-to organization. Maybe that's the easy, the easy way out for this question. Um, so we have different ways of looking at it. I'm going to go about it um, through the climate justice lens. If you, if you look specifically at the debates, the conversations, the, um, even the blockages around how to tackle climate change as a collective threat to humanity's future. Since the Paris Agreement, particularly, we have this notion of uh, collective responsibility, but differentiated responsibility, right? And beyond this notion of responsibility, we also have to recognize, and this was very strong, particularly at the latest COP26, that we have some countries which are already more directly affected by climate change today, and who are indeed threatened in the very notion of even sovereignty, if we look at small uh, island nations. Um, compared to others which are being hit also in very profound ways, if we're looking at the US, you know, it's one of the most affected uh, countries by climate disruptions, um, but which has, you know, like have better capacities essentially to answer. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because one, there are regional specificities to take into account in terms of how we respond to climate change. It's not just a question of how we tackle it from a global perspective, it's how we tackle it well and how we tackle it according to uh, capabilities, to uh, cultural sensitivity, national sensitivity, historical sensitivity, and how we learn from one another in terms of what adaptation means. And that's the key part, particularly since COP26, this has come about as the one thing that is going to determine, I think, the decade of climate action. And uh, once again, the, the last two IPCC reports highlight this. We have entered very quickly into the age of climate adaptation on top of climate mitigation, and we need to be therefore uh, regionally sensitive. You need to have different organizations that deal with the regional specificities and who try to collectivize effort to coordinate them. I think that this is a really, really key aspect, because if you have like a flurry of different, you know, institutional mandates, at times they can sort of um, work at odds with one another or create institutional competition, including for funding, which should be really avoided. And uh, it's not just about institutional mandates uh, or policies, it's about how policy is now going to facilitate the actual implementation of adaptation security uh, programming or security dimensions and how that trickles from an international, regional, national, subnational, all the way down to the local. So the challenge today is more one of 
data gathering, data collection, and data triangulation. Where should funding, where should programming priorities, where should strategic priorities be? How are they then uh, you know, given to certain regional institutions? How do they then trickle down to the field in terms of uh, funding capacity and, and process capacity? Because at the end of the day, climate adaptation is very much going to be about how communities can become resilient together. So that requires this notion of indeed, you know, like um, relying on arbitration, dialogue, even mediation in some circumstances. And therefore, how different institutions can indeed sort of streamline um, climate programming in a coherent way. Thank you, Olivia. Now moving to Mariko, what does the climate action look like from the EU perspective? The EU is really determined to contribute its part to that collective responsibility in a relatively reliable and predictable manner. So, for instance, the EU's Green Deal is an unprecedented ambitious package to reorient its responses towards climate and environmental challenges, not only within Europe, but also globally. And it combines all the comparative advantages that the EU as an organization has as not only legislator and norm setter, but also budget holder. 30 to 35% of our entire budget for international cooperation has now been earmarked for climate adaptation and mitigation, but also our trade instruments, our diplomatic network, and um, our security missions. But within this, this is big package, um, peace and security concerns and link with climate are a rel relatively new topic. But not only for us, uh, also for the UN, the OECE, the African Union, civil society worlds. And it was only last October that we formulated our policy for how to address the peace and security links going forward. And we're taking first steps as we speak to implement it. The consensus around how to do it is growing. And as we do so, we enter new partnerships, we improve our analytics, badly needed, we improve our early warning tools, sorely needed, we strengthen our capacity, equally sorely needed, and we are committing funding. And indeed, the challenges, how to get in the right priorities, in the right manners and places, uh, the funding to the right people and in an equal, equitable, inclusive manner is a massive challenge. Annick, what's your view on this? I would agree with uh, what Olivia said, that I wouldn't choose one organization to address these risks. So many complex challenges that cannot you know, be solved by just one, I think. Um, so what Mariko and Olivia say about international cooperation is also something um, I can uh, strongly echo. Yeah, each forum is unique with different strengths and weaknesses. And yeah, Mariko just uh, gave examples from the European Union. A lot of the focus in research is also often on the United Nations and EU. From my research, I also see a lot of potential for the OSCE. Prior to the Russian invasion um, of Ukraine, the OSCE saw a lot of increased momentum to address climate-related security risks. And as the largest regional security organization with 57 participating states, I, I think this says a lot. Uh, the OSCE has a, a comprehensive approach to security. Uh, which includes uh, an entire dimension on the economy and environment, like climate change. And uh, at the start of December, so last year, they were successful in the OSCE Ministerial Council to agree on a decision on strengthening the cooperation uh, to address the challenges uh, caused by climate change. And uh, yeah, I think this is yeah, an, an important uh, way forward for an organization that's not as often talked about in relation to climate and security um, in research or yeah, news articles. To this point and to Mariko's point, we have to understand indeed that the institutional learning curve has been unfortunately slow. We're coming now to a point of history where 
climate change and its relationship, particularly to security, is attracting more attention. And as part of the attention that I have seen, there is, you know, a very deliberate effort to try and organize cross and inter-institutional learning. There are, you know, some innovative, I've seen it, for example, with the EU, which at some point, you know, was... um, Uh, suggesting to have focal points with the African Union, with uh, the Organization of American States, with regional African organizations and other regional organizations in the world to essentially sort of establish communication lines, um, which are regular and to organize, you know, regular meetings as well to try and understand what are climate-related risks. If we look at the number of debates that have been happening um, just over the last two years um, at the UN Security Council, again, on climate-related issues, um, we're seeing, you know, the topic gain in, in pace and interest. So we are on a learning curve, and the learning curve is accelerating. So that's why there is reasons to be hopeful about the directions in which we go. And there's a necessity, essentially, to sort of work past political or geopolitical Mm, sensitivities, I would say, because if you look back at indeed, you know, the differences of the quality of debate between the OSCE and the UN Security Council and the way in which Russia at the time before the Ukraine invasion indeed did, you know, take part into uh, a very ambitious uh, climate related debate at the OSCE, but then blocks every single motion at the UN Security Council that indicates essentially that what we believe about Russia's position when we look at it from the Security Council position is maybe not quite as true as we as as you know, it's not quite as simple as we would like it to be. I couldn't agree more. One of the lessons that was once taught to me by a World Bank researcher that I'll never forget is as the World Bank is very good at comparing all types of data through history, the trends on governance reform. And that is what we're talking about. Nothing less than a reform of this hyper-complex, multi-level institutional structure at all levels from local to international. This data cruncher told me that on average, in favorable circumstances, true institutional reform takes about 40, four zero years. So now we interested in climate change response are interested in finding the accelerator button. And we have to be honest, it's not easy, but I am encouraged that things are happening. And we are encountering the challenges as we go and applying think tanks, lessons and experiences from first generation projects uh, as we do this. One other lesson that I find very interesting from this first generation climate security projects is, is that we really need to get better at combining climate and security expertise. Climate is a job and security is a job. It's a trade with its own tools, data, concepts, and these need to be merged at all levels, again, local, regionally, internationally. And the warning lesson that we can also already learn is that when done wrongly, security action can worsen the climate, or vice versa, done wrongly, climate action can worsen the security situation. But also here, the hopeful lesson is that when done right, climate action can reduce conflict and contribute to peace. We have proof of concept. Thank you. And we move to the last question we have prepared with Sabrine to you today, or last two questions in a way. And I would ask you to give me two sentences as reply to this question. First one on what is your hope as regard to climate security topic? Um, And you shared a lot already today during our discussion. But just to finish it on a positive note, 
And the second question would be what we as society, as policymakers, as academia thinkers can do already today to contribute to this climate security nexus? It's very challenging to put that into two sentences. <laughs> Because although it's not always um, easy, I do try to be an optimist. Um, we already discussed it uh, multiple times today, but there's a lot of room for improvement, but we also need to acknowledge that there already have been a lot of steps in the right direction and that there is a willingness to do more. Uh, so I think that is my hope that this ambitious, this momentum uh, stays high, that people are continuously uh, willing to do more. So I think yeah, keeping this momentum high and uh, that kind of links to your second question, which is continuing the discussion. Um, I like that Mariko said that it's so important you know, for uh, academia, policymakers, and yeah, a lot of different groups to continue talking together, to um, continue yeah, trying to influence the public debate um, yeah, and for people at home. Yeah, if this is the first time you're hearing about climate security, perhaps, um, yeah, try, try, try to look around yourself, try, try to read more, try to ask, um, ask people around you um, about these topics yeah, and just um, yeah, continue engaging, continue talking. My hope is really that I will live long enough and that the action will be fast enough, that I can be part of this transformative energy that we have detected and that we feel is growing so they can see it um, together with my children. Um, in this life. And my dream is that a future diplomats like myself are no longer the lawyers and the political scientists, but that they are hydrologists, environmental engineers, and ecosystem experts. My hope, and it's, uh, it's a really large one, is that through climate adaptation and through the really rough tumble dry that we're going to go through, in the next uh, years and decades, we managed to come out of it with a better understanding of complex living systems and that it drives institutional reform, whatever those institutions will look like, and that it will transform power relationships at the international level in a way that is just and fair. In terms of what we can do for climate security, It's uh, to be more energy sober going forward, especially here in Western Europe, because it will contribute to lessening climate disruptions and a lot of other dis disruptions happening at the east of us at the moment. And I really hope that we can move very quickly within the European Union, shifting away from subsidizing fossils to subsidizing better energy without feeding conflict and ecological disruptions elsewhere. Let's put it this way. We hope you found this episode gripping and insightful. More to come on this mini-series, so stay tuned. To hear more on the diversity of international security topics, listen to other episodes from WiseProcess Voices channel. You can find us on social media and podcast platforms. Thank you for being with us.